what, what do you think are the most important events in human history? Events that have affected more people in a greater way than any other. Well, perhaps you might think of the invention of the printing press. Uh, it made books and education widely available, including easy access to the Bible for people worldwide. Uh, or maybe the invention of the steam engine. Uh, brought the Industrial Revolution, manufacturing, modern agriculture to the world, production of food. Uh, or perhaps you might think of the discovery of penicillin that has saved millions of lives in the last hundred years. Or maybe you might think of the invention of the transistor that in a little over 60 years has revolutionised technology in every area of life. I reckon you could probably make an argument for all of those four and maybe you can come up with some others. But let me suggest that the story of Adam and Eve and the snake, the story of the first sin, tops all of those. I'll put it number two on my top ten. The second most significant event in human history. The life of every single person since has been dramatically affected for the worse. Their environment their relationships, their bodies, their choices, their futures. The second most significant event in human history. Well, let's go through it and let me see if I can prove it to you. Well, remember how chapter 2 finishes. Adam and Eve are both naked, they feel no shame. It's a picture of innocence and purity, of complete openness and honesty, without guilt or embarrassment. Mankind is in harmony with God, with creation and with each other. It's the perfect picture. But it's not going to last, of course. Chapter 3 changes everything and it begins by introducing a new player, the serpent. Made by God, but crafty, intent on working against God. We're not actually told that it's Satan. In Revelation we're told it's Satan, but, but here the narrative doesn't tell. And the serpent begins uh, his temptation simply by asking a question. It's nothing too obvious. It's it's a very subtle undermining of God's word. So verse 1, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree? It's the first step, just that little doubt in Eve's mind, can she really trust God's word? And notice that he makes God out to be stricter than he actually is. Of course, there's only one tree that they can't eat from. God has not said you can't eat from any tree, just just one. There's a thousand trees you can eat from, just not that one. And Satan's strategy hasn't really changed. It begins with simple mocking questions, I think. It may not necessarily come from Satan himself, but Satan loves it when these mocking questions come from a workmate or a neighbour or maybe a spouse Uh, Satan is blinding their eyes. Questions like, you don't believe the Bible, do you? Do you really think praying does something? Are you saying all other religions are wrong? Why would you bother giving up your Sundays to go to church? All sorts of other questions. Don't let Satan fool you the way he fools the woman. For some reason, when she answers, her answer doesn't get it right. 
Satan's question might be wrong, but uh, her answer's not quite right either. Why is that? Maybe she didn't listen when Adam explained it correctly, or maybe Adam didn't pass it on correctly himself, but she adds another condition to the command. Uh, She seems to be making God stricter than he actually is. Has she uh, received something of that doubt from the serpent already? Here's her reply, verse 3. God did say, you must not eat from the tree, uh, must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now God hadn't said they couldn't touch it, just that they couldn't eat it and yet here she is making it even stricter again. Maybe the snake picks up on that but he sees an opportunity and so the next part of his strategy is not a question but he moves on, it's now a statement, a direct contradiction of God's command. You will not surely die. And then he follows that up with another statement that casts doubt on God's motives. For God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is selfish, God is a spoil sport, he wants to stop you having fun, he wants to stop you from living life the way you want, he wants to stop you from fulfilling your potential. And it's the sort of thing we say to ourselves, isn't it, when we're tempted? God doesn't know best, I know best. I'm sure I would be happier if only I lost my temper and get even. I'm sure life would be better if I cheat on my tax return or my spouse. I'm sure life would be better if I move churches or if I buy that new car or if I keep my money for myself. God's rules are stopping me from being happy and fulfilled. He's just mean. That's what we say to ourselves. When we do that, we're doing nothing more than doubting God's word. We're doubting his motives. And as the woman thinks about what the snake has said and as she looks at the fruit and how enticing it is, she gives in and she eats it and then she gives some to Adam who eats it too. And in their actions they doubt God's order. They turn his world upside down. His design was that animals would be ruled by mankind who in turn would be ruled by God. But in listening to the animals, she's turning things on their head. It's now animals who set the agenda, mankind follows along and they remove God from the throne. But not only that, God's design was that man would be the leader and his wife would be the helper. But now Adam and Eve turn that on its head. It's Eve who's leading and Adam who's following. Adam should have said no. He should have told Eve not to eat the fruit. But what does he do instead? He gives in meekly without a word and takes the bite. But he doesn't just give in. He doesn't step in and speak up when the snake is weaving his magic. Did you notice at the end of verse 6 she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Did you notice that? Adam was standing right there as the snake was having his conversation with Eve. 
and he says nothing. He just goes along with the flow. Husbands, is that what you do? In your families, are you just sitting in the background unnoticed and silent? How many of you sit back and refuse to rock the boat for the sake of an easy life? Refuse to take a spiritual lead in your family? Refuse to stand up when bad choices are being made? Refuse to pull out the Bible? Don't suggest that the family pray about something? Won't set boundaries for your kids? Won't challenge poor choices? Won't rebuke or correct? all because you want an easy life. We kid ourselves that we're being flexible and accommodating and laid back, that we're keeping the peace, but it's often selfishness, laziness, it's not service, it's following rather than leading. It's not God's design. So husbands and fathers... This includes me. Whenever we refuse to be the leader God wants us to be, we're simply showing ourselves to be Adam's children, like father, like son. Well, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. The humans are revolting. They rebel against God's rule. And that's the essence of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's refusing to allow God to decide good and evil. He says no, they say yes. Eating the fruit is insisting on making their own choice about what is right and what's wrong. That's really the definition of sin. Sin is that attitude that insists on making your own choice rather than listening to God. That is the root cause of all disobedience. It's the sin that leads to all other sins. The pride that says, no, I want to lead. I want to decide. It's the same choice that every human since has made. That choice to be your own boss. To set your own morality. And so even good people, even good citizens are sinful according to this definition because they decide that They want to live life a certain way. That's rebellion against God. It's summarised well in in the second box of the two ways to live outline. Uh, Perhaps you know it. Uh, Box two says, We all reject the rule of God by trying to run our life our own way without him. But we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. We want to be independent. We think we know better than God and yet we only mess things up more and our world suffers the effects. Uh, Whether it's environmental disasters, species extinction, third world poverty, the greenhouse effect, depletion of fossil fuels, world wars, things on a world scale, or whether it's just the everyday fights, squabbles, divorces, broken families, robberies, murders. Our world bears the scars of your independence and my independence against God. And just like with Adam and Eve, 
uh, the results are felt immediately for them as well. You see there in verse 7, this is the after photo. We've seen the before photo at the end of chapter 2. Well, here's the after photo. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The fruit does open their eyes, just as the snake said it would, and they see the shameful enormity of what they've done. And so the first part of paradise is ruined. Their perfect relationship with one another is ruined. Shame and guilt and fear and secrets replace the openness and the purity and the innocence. And straight away the second part is ruined as well, their relationship with God. God comes walking through the garden. The shame and the guilt they feel for each other, they now feel in terms of their relationship with God and they hide from him. At which point it becomes obvious uh, what they've done and God begins the questioning And so this first sin of eating is quickly followed by a second, passing the buck, (laughs) shifting the blame, refusing to accept responsibility. Like a hot potato, they pass the blame from one to another. Verse 12, God addresses the man, that's the right place to begin, he's in charge, he's the accountable one, but he answers, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. First up he tries to blame God, you put her here, it's your fault. Then he tries to blame the woman, she gave it to me. The eyes turn to the woman and the woman tries to pass the blame on, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And we still do that, don't we, each of us? We love to shift, to deflect the blame to someone else, refuse to accept responsibility for our behaviour. Sure, I lost my temper, but he made me do it. Well, it's okay to cheat on my marriage. My needs weren't being met. It's okay to speed. I won't hurt anybody. But passing the blame, it won't work for God. He sees straight through the excuses. He sees through theirs. He sees through ours. And he, he issues his decree, uh, it's judgment for all. Creation is cursed. People are not cursed. Uh, people are punished. The snake is cursed. Uh, forever at war with the woman and her offspring. Uh, and the end of verse 15, God declares that the offspring of the woman will eventually crush the serpent's head. Uh, for Eve, the consequences, the punishment will be frustration. The incredible joy of children will now be tempered and soured by terrible pain in childbirth. The intimacy and love and connection of marriage will now be spoiled by the frustration of conflict. Strong feelings of desire for her husband but at the same time he will often fail to live up to those feelings. He'll abuse his position and take advantage of it. Uh, There's a second idea behind that phrase that, uh, you know, sort of people hold 50-50 in terms of what they think it's about. 
uh, your desire will be for your husband. And half the commentators, and I, th- I agree with them, I think, says that it's about your desire will be for your husband's position. You'll, you will want to be top. You will want to be the head. And he will want to be the head. The woman will fail to be content with where God has placed her. The woman will try to exert her, her authority to stand up for herself and want to lead. And often the husband will be just as bad. Rather than offering servant leadership, he will rule with harshness and selfishness and marriages now will be a battle of wills. It's interesting that that same pair of words, desiring and ruling, are found in one other place in the Bible. It's actually the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Cain is angry with his brother Abel and God warns him, sin is crouching at the door, it desires to have you, but you must master it. There's going to be a fight. One thing desires, you must master it. And when it comes to the marriage relationship, it's this same conflict, two opposing positions. Both want to be first, both want to have the power. A picture of many, a picture of many marriages today. Well, that's the woman. Uh, the man's judgement is frustration as well. He's been given the job of subduing the earth uh, and now his work will be frustrated. Work that has such potential to be rewarding and fruitful and satisfying will now be backbreaking and painful. Nothing will come easily. Uh, so often, these days, work consumes men. Uh, instead of working to live, they live to work. They spend, life, spend their working life grasping and grasping for something more, something extra. If they can just get this in their work, then they'll feel satisfied. More power, more influence, more responsibility, more money, more success. And the frustration is that they never achieve it, but they also end up losing grip of the things that really do count in life. There are very few men who get to the end of their life and on their deathbed wish they'd spent more time at work. What's your attitude to work? Are you comfortable with its priority? How is work impacting your health and your stress and your family and your church ministry and your spiritual health? Well, the final part of God's judgement, verse 23, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden from their perfect relationship with creation. Do you notice the three perfectly balanced relationships with each other with God and with creation, have now been broken. They're banished from the garden, banned from eating from the tree of life and slow and so condemned to the slow decay of death, the gradual winding down, wearing out, uh, the end of joy and work and friendships, the end of relationships, the very things that God made us for. That's what death brings And so all of these effects, all of these frustrations uh, are the effects of the fall that we live with every day. And so that's why I'm saying it's the second most significant event in human history. 
But maybe you're thinking, okay, fair enough, that's number two. But what's number one? What's more important than Adam's sin? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Romans chapter 5 gives us the answer. It compares the top two. Follow along with me. If if you're a quick Bible flipper over in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5 verse 12, it begins by addressing the claims of number two. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sin. That's pretty significant. When Adam sinned, death came into the world. Physical death, spiritual death, separation from God. And Adam and Eve passed that basic orientation to every one of their offspring. If Adam and Eve were spiritually dead, then they can only produce spiritually dead children. And so each of us have been bought, uh, born with an inbuilt inclination to do our own thing. It's in our nature. We've been born with the mark of Adam's sin, like a large black birthmark that stains our soul. And so we all sin, we all choose our way instead of God's. Every human without exception. That's why it's the second most significant event. Adam's sin affected everything, affected us, affected our world. And so what that means is when something happens that makes us groan, something happens that makes us realise that people are sinful, that the world is corrupt, maybe someone steals from you or abuses you, abandons you, sickness strikes or unemployment, your marriage strikes trouble and you realise it's not the way you'd hoped Maybe you recognise something rotten in yourself in the way you speak or react. When those things happen, by all means despair and repent and weep and pray, but don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when those things happen to you. That's the way the world is at the moment. It's what it means to live in a fallen world. It's what it means to live in a world corrupted by this second most significant event in history. People will let you down. You will let others down. That's the world we live in. Every human being born spiritually dead. Well, that's not entirely true, is it? Because there was one human born of a human mother, but with God himself as the father. He was born spiritually alive and he never sinned. The second Adam, Jesus, the only human who ever fully measured up to being made in God's image, who perfectly reflected his character and behaviour. Colossians 1.15 says he's the image of the invisible God. He is the image, the firstborn over all creation. And the number one most significant event in human history is, of course, his life and death and resurrection because it's how God undoes the effects of the second most important event. It's how we can move from death to life, from guilt to innocence. Nothing is more significant than that. In Romans 5, Paul proves the point. Verse 15, he says, For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, 
how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Adam brought death, Jesus brings a gift. What's the gift? The judgement followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Being put right with God. Having our guilt wiped away. The guilt that comes from being a human in Adam washed away by the work of Jesus and being in him. But not only justification, verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who have received God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus. Not just a restored, justified relationship, but a victorious life into eternity. And all of that comes because of the number one most significant event in human history. Jesus, birth, life, death, resurrection. The one who pays our debt and restores our life, who overturns the decay and the destruction of that first sin. Or at least he can for those who trust his work for them. But not only that, one day Jesus will restore our world and God will bring in a new heavens and a new earth and that perfect picture of Genesis 2 will be nothing more than a dull black and white shadow of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of our eternal home. And I want you to notice, as as we highlighted how relationships were broken down at the fall, relationships with man and God and creation, notice how they're all restored again. What Adam messes up, Jesus fixes Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Again, restored. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Yes, we're living in a fallen world but Jesus, the true image of God, is working on a new world. That's the big idea of the Bible. Jesus is at work making us into a heavenly city that he will dwell in. That's the big idea of the Bible. It's a big idea that is worth building your life on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these verses. Uh, We recognise ourselves. We're looking in a mirror as we uh, see how Adam and Eve behaved how they listened rather than to you, uh, 
to the serpent. Lord, we would be depressed and destroyed if that was the end of the story. But we thank you for the number one most significant event. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the faith that connects us to him, that brings the gift of righteousness and a reigning eternal life uh, restored with you. Uh, Lord, help us as we uh, live in the meantime to live out these truths, uh, to reflect them and to speak them, to practice them, that you might be honoured and glorified. Amen. We're going to sing in response to God's word.